Well, happy Easter, everyone. It's so great to have you here with us. Whether you've been at Grace for a long time or you're just joining us for the very first time, uh, I'm just so thrilled that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, we like to say that we're an old church, but we don't act our age. Started in 1895, and we have deep roots and a deep love for the city and the region uh, around Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, but we have, uh, also have a heart for the whole world. And so no matter where you're joining us from today, across the whole world, happy Easter. Uh, I read some interesting facts about Easter recently that the, the question was posed to people, which part of a chocolate bunny do you eat first? And uh, you probably already guessed it, but 78% of people said the ears, 11% uh, said feet first, and then the other 11% uh, of sociopaths started with the rabbit's tail, uh, weirdos. But how about this? What percentage of parents do you think admit to stealing their kids' Easter candy? Well, it's 81% of parents admitted to being candy thieves. And uh, to the other 19%, I would say, you know where liars go. Anyway, despite the chocolate and despite the bunnies and the candy, you, you all know that this day is far more than just a tradition that we gather to celebrate. This day has real life implications for you and me in 2023 and how we live and approach our days on earth. And so we're gonna talk about that today. If you're kind of new around here, it's important for you to know that we're in the midst of a series right now, a teaching series on one of the most famous and beautiful chapters of the whole Bible, Romans 8. It's a series called Life in the Spirit, and we're going through this chapter verse by verse for nine weeks. It's been an amazing journey so far. And actually, we would love for you to finish out the chapter with us over the next few weeks. In fact, would you consider making a commitment today that just says, I'm gonna give church a try for the rest of April. So today's the 9th, you already got one down, and so for the 16th, the 23rd, and the 30th, will you just say, I'm gonna put those three dates on my calendar, I'm gonna lock it in, and this month I'm just gonna prioritize my soul and my spiritual health by making church a top priority. And the end of this chapter, where we're going, Romans 8, has some of the most insightful, often misunderstood, even controversial passages in the whole Bible. So it's just a great time to jump in. We're gonna pick things up today in Romans 8:22, and so if you have a Bible or the YouVersion app on your device, you can find your way there. And obviously, Romans 8:22 is not a typical Easter text, uh, but this passage has resurrection implications all over it. Paul's gonna acknowledge at the outset of this passage that it's easy for us to lose hope. In fact, some of you are here today and you're in the process of losing hope. You've had some difficulties happen. You, you, you got some health news recently. You can't kick that habit that's plagued you. You've got uh, some mental health stuff going on. You had a relational falling out. Maybe you're just losing hope today. And, and guys, losing hope is a very dangerous place to be because on the day hope is lost, you begin to die inside. It's like a, a, a spiritual fire that keeps you going during tough times. It, that fire begins to go out. You hear stories of prisoners of war that, that can last a long time through very brutal circumstances as long as they have hope. But when that hope is lost, the end comes quickly. In Dante's Inferno, there's a, a sign that uh, hangs above the entrance to hell. And the sign says, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And, and so hell is presented as a place where hope has been abandoned. And, and some of you are living in a kind of hell on earth this Easter season because you feel your hope dwindling. Well, I've got good news for you today. One of the main things that Jesus purchased for you through his death on the cross and secured for you through his resurrection from the dead is hope. 
And so here's my big idea today. Because of Christ's resurrection, you can live with a glorious hope for the future. If you're here today and, and you're losing hope, hope is available to you. But, but let's just admit it, hope is hard. I'm not gonna stand up here on Easter Sunday and pretend that it's not. I'd be lying to you, just like those parents who said they didn't steal their kids' Easter candy. <laughs> but, but, but the question is, why is hope so hard? Well, heck, just look around. I mean, it seems like the world is getting worse and worse by the day. Look at some of the, the headlines just from the past couple weeks. Another horrific school shooting, more train derailments, banks collapsing, uh, collapsing, nuclear weapons being tested, enemy nations joining forces, riots and unrest in the streets in cities around the world. Heck, you know it's bad when a few weeks ago they just threw in, oh yeah, UFOs are out there and probably aliens are everywhere. And everyone's just like, okay, fine, just add it to the pile. I mean, the news is so bad and so constant. We're becoming numb to it. We're desensitized. I don't know if your kids play sports. My wife and I, we, we have three kids. They're all grown up now, but with two boys and a girl and, and having three full sports careers to compare uh, as a parent, I can look back now and rank the sports on the, the stinky scale. I would say that the least smelly sport was swimming. Uh, our daughter was a swimmer. You just had the suit and the towel and a little chlorine, not stinky at all. But in my experience, the stinkiest of all sports is hockey. Chase played hockey for a brief stint, and wow, that bag and that equipment from, from the skates to all the pads, the, it, it could melt the paint off of walls. And you get a couple of kids with those bags and all their gear in the back of a car, I mean, exponential increase on the stink index. But, but here's what would happen. If you were in that smelly car long enough, like say coming back from a long road trip, you, do you know what happens? After a couple of hours in that car, you don't even smell it anymore. You've become immune. Now, just take one person who's coming in out of the fresh air to open that car door and get in the car, you're gonna knock them out. And I think with all the wars and all the cultural deterioration and all the moral decay and the political infighting and the distrust of all institutions and no reliable media outlets, but they're still all telling us stuff 24 hours a day and natural disasters, we've, we've almost become immune to it all. I had a missionary friend come back to the States after being away for like five years and he said, Derek, the stuff that's on TV would have been considered like pornography just a few years ago when I left. And I come back and it's just everyone's just accepted it as normal. It's like riding around with a smelly gym bag. Pretty soon, you don't even notice it anymore, just how bad things are. And so Paul starts out this section acknowledging a kind of hopelessness that, 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 that we've become accustomed to, and, and, and it can encompass us when we see the world just deteriorating. Just a couple verses ago, in Romans 8.20, he, he started describing it as the world being subjected to futility. There's a hopelessness because of the cycle of death and decay and decline that seems like it's on repeat in the world. And so we pick things up in verse 22 where Paul reinforces this again. He says it this way. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, many of you listening have either been through the pains of childbirth yourself or you've been in the room and witnessed it. I witnessed it three times. In fact, when Kim was pregnant with our first Caleb, we went into these things called birthing classes, and I found out that I was gonna be a childbirth coach. Now, that sounded very cool. I came from a long line of coaches. My dad was a coach, my mom was a coach, I was a football and track coach, and I had always loved coaching. 
And now I could add to my resume, childbirth coach. Well, let's just say it this way. That job sounded a lot more fun than it actually turned out to be <laughs> because the pain of childbirth is brutal. But, but, but it's the perfect metaphor for Paul to use here because the pain of childbirth, even though it's awful, it's attached to hope. It's a pain that recognizes that on the other side of the pain is going to be a child, a little baby, that's gonna make it worth it all. The pain is actually leading to life. It's groaning, it's, but it's groaning with hope. And so Paul does this brilliant thing now. He says, and it's not just the world that's groaning. It's not just out there that's suffering, but we too, we have a pain in here. Even those who follow Jesus, even those who possess the Holy Spirit. Look how he says it here in verse 23. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, listen, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so there's this groaning that goes along with being human. For some of you, you, you know, you groan the first thing when you get out of bed in the morning. You do the dad move. You groan when you stand up out of a chair. I'm doing that more and more these days. Maybe you groan on Sunday evening as you realize that the, the weekend is over and you have to start work again. Or you groan with another medical bill that you thought was covered by insurance. Or you groan when you put your baby down for a nap and they wake up 3.2 minutes later screaming. But there are deeper groans too, the groan of broken relationships because of political differences, the groan of loneliness that you feel deep inside that no one else knows about, the groan of feeling like your life has no purpose. You ever experienced this kind of deep groaning? It's a pain of the soul that escapes words. This word groaning carries with it a tremendous agony and pain. And so we find ourselves in this state where, where we, along with the whole creation, are groaning, we're crying out to God. This isn't right, help. A couple verses from now we find out that it's not just creation that's groaning and it's not just us that's groaning. We find out that the Spirit of God too is groaning. He, he, he's about to say that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's that word again and it's, it's amazing to think about. The Spirit of God groaning. So, so, so we have God joining us in our groaning. We, we see this with Jesus too. There's a place in Mark 7 when, when Jesus is healing a man who's deaf and, and mute and he's lived a life of suffering and Jesus looks up to heaven and the Bible says that he sighs. The, the word literally means he groans. And so like the spirit, Jesus came into the world and he's standing alongside of sufferers and he, he's feeling with, he's empathizing with what, what they're going through. And now you say, well, that's just empathy. Oh, no, 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 it doesn't stop there. He entered into this groaning himself. He does. He knows firsthand about suffering. How does he know that? How could God personally know what groaning and pain is like? What a woman in childbirth kind of pain is like? How could he possibly know? You know what the answer is? It's Easter. It's this weekend that we're celebrating right now. Remember, on the cross on Good Friday, Jesus said these famous words. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting a verse from the Old Testament, from Psalm 22.1. And here's what that whole verse that he's quoting from says. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Jesus gets it. He gets our groaning. He gets what it's like to call out and to have no one come. 
You know why? The Bible says this was God absorbing in himself the death penalty for the entire human race. And because in that moment, Jesus Christ was abandoned in his groaning, you never have to be. Because Jesus Christ was forsaken in his death groan. When you groan, the father hears. The, the way a mother or father hears the cry of a child. And he loves you, he hears your cry, and he comes to you. And so there are a lot of people these days who, who are looking around at the groaning and the suffering in the world, who are looking at their own suffering, and they're trying to come up with answers for all of it. And I think there are three wrong answers to our present suffering that, that we need to avoid. Here's wrong answer number one, that, that, that would just say there is no God. Like the easiest go-to these days is just to abandon belief altogether, that there is, uh, that there's no God. And I chose this path myself a number of years ago as part of my spiritual journey. I thought that being an atheist was easier and less tenuous than being a Christian. Let me just tell you, it's not. Because you don't just get to go around poking holes in everyone else's belief. You actually have to come up with intelligent ways to explain why things are the way they are. And if the only tool in your toolbox is random chance, it's very difficult indeed to explain things. And so to try to explain the level of design, for example, in detail, for example, of every element of this world that we live in, to try to explain that without an intelligent designer, it's nearly impossible. I mean, just, just take one, look at the finely tuned workings of the human body, the intricacies of the human brain or the heart or the central nervous system. Top on the list of, of perfection is the human eye. It's a, it's a marvel. It's more sophisticated by far than any auto-focusing, color-distinguishing, information-gathering device humans can or ever will come up with. In fact, Charles Darwin, the father of evolutionary theory himself said, to suppose that the human eye with so many parts all working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. See, whenever something manifests all the signs of intelligent design, we assume that there was a designer. The same way I would never walk down the hallway of our offices here at Grace and I would see a laptop computer on someone's desk and assume that that thing came from a chance explosion in an electronics factory. Instead, I look at that and say, well, some smart person designed that thing. And so saying that there is no God is an untenable option. Here's wrong answer number two, that God is not in control. Some would say, okay, maybe there is a God up there looking down, but the world he made is spiraling out of his control and there's nothing he can do about it. He's powerless to do anything about the problems of this world. But, but, but let me point this out. During his life on earth, Jesus came as a revelation of what God was like and he showed us that this is not possible. In fact, God is in control of the universe, even down to the atomic and subatomic levels. Jesus did things like transforming the molecular structure of water and made it into wine. He took pieces of bread and fish and he fed thousands of people. He created matter from energy. He, he could suspend gravity. He changed weather patterns. He eliminated unfruitful trees without a saw or ax. He had a cognitive and practical mastery of every phase of, of, of reality on this earth. He, he's probably amused by what Nobel Prize winners are awarded for these days. So, so the idea that God is not in control is a false answer that many have accepted as true. Here's the third wrong answer is that God is evil. Others may say, okay, well, I guess there is a God, but he, he must just hate me. Like there's this malevolent deity up there controlling the, the universe. And this is not true either. 
The Bible teaches that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He, he never has the slightest dark inclination in his mind whatsoever. In fact, later in Romans 8, Paul goes through this long list of things that will never separate us from the love of Christ. God's love for us is breathtaking. And so the answer to why the world is, is the way it is is not because God is evil. So, so according to our text today, well, what is the right answer to our present suffering? Here's how I would summarize. Our loving and powerful God is in the middle of redeeming what has been broken. And I say we're in the middle of it because there's a tension in the middle. He's not done yet. And the middle of projects is always messy, isn't it? It, it? it always feels hopeless. It always feels incomplete. I love watching great sports comebacks. And it's NCAA March Madness time right now. And I saw a game the other night where, where Miami was the underdog and they came back and beat Texas, the number two seed. And I knew, I'd already seen the final score. It was 88-81 Miami. But with five minutes, I was watching and they were down by 13. And when you watch a game like that back, there's this weird cognitive dissonance because it's still exciting and it's still tense. But you already know the final result. And so let me broaden the lesson out for just a moment. The middle of a hard story is tolerable when you know how the story ends. Do you know what it's called? Like when, when you get yourself focused in the middle on, on the victorious outcome during a time of struggle, that's called hope. And I think we've gotten hope all wrong. Our modern understanding of hope is, is kind of this wishy-washy, cross-your-fingers, uncertain kind of optimism. Like if you're dating a new guy and you're like, man, I hope it works out between us, or I hope we get married someday, or I hope he texts me back soon. That is not biblical hope. In the Bible, hope is an indication of certainty. It is a strong and confident expectation. Hope is faith in the future tense. It is gritty, it is rugged, it presses through the most difficult of circumstances. Hope is active, it's something that we choose and wherever this hope is present, especially in difficult circumstances, it leads to a greatness of soul. It is this hope more than anything else that enables individuals and marriages and families and even churches to endure and prevail to the end. Every day we choose to hope or not to. And listen, for you Christians out there, you know, we've been talking this whole series about life in the Spirit, and hope is one of the greatest resources given to us by the Holy Spirit. As believers, we find the center of our hope right here in these verses, that God is in the middle of a redemption project. And although we groan, God has already started something in us. Paul describes it in verse 23 as the first fruits of the Spirit. See, in an agricultural society, when a harvest was ready to come in, that there was, there was a, a first batch of fruit that would be collected. It was the good stuff, but it was only the beginning. It was a foretaste of the harvest that is to come. Other places in the Bible, Paul calls the Holy Spirit a down payment. It's the same principle. Like if you put a down payment on a house, you're giving the owner some of the money now, with the promise that there's more money to come. That's the same concept as here. The Spirit is our down payment with, with more to come. He is the first fruits 
with the full harvest yet to come. Uh, He's our earthly taste of the presence of God with the full presence of God, the full redemption of God yet to come. And so, yes, the Spirit is indwelling us now. Yes, the Spirit is transforming us now, and He's producing character and power in us now, and He's providing evidence now that we are children of God. But all of these things will bring with them the guarantee that God will finish and complete the work. The full harvest is yet to come. And this knowledge in the middle here, this knowledge should do something for us. It should produce something in us. And that thing is called hope. And so we're eagerly awaiting our redemption, Paul says. Now look at verse 24. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Hope, Paul says. Yes, you're groaning. Yes, that the world feels like it's falling apart. Yes, you have stress and anxiety and loneliness, but you must be patient because you're in the middle of a redemption project in which you know the ending. And so hope is this future orientation with which we can live our present lives. And just like love isn't a a feeling, hope isn't just a feeling, it's a decision. It's an orientation, it's a mindset. So I ask you today, on Easter Sunday, are you a hoper? And to help you honestly assess that answer, I want to offer you three qualities of those who hope. And these statements are are simply putting words to some of the stuff that, that we've already just talked about from this passage. But here's the first. Hopers understand that suffering is part of the story. So hope is not just this, you know, blue sky thing that's reserved for the idealists and dreamers. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the people who put their head in the sand and who are oblivious to the world and just repeat in their mind that everything is going to be fine, like they don't actually possess biblical hope. They're just being naive. Hopers understand that there is suffering. Yes, more than that. They feel that suffering. Like when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the grave, he knew exactly how that story was gonna end. He knew exa- he, it was gonna end with celebration and resurrection and great rejoicing by everyone around. And yet, he sat down in the midst of the suffering with those who were weeping. And what does Jesus do? He weeps. See, hopers understand that suffering is part of the deal. Psychologist Scott Peck in his classic book, The Road Less Traveled, he has a famous opening line to the book. It says, life is difficult. He goes on, he says, this is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we can transcend it. See, people who possess true hope, they recognize that hope can only exist in the midst of problems. If everything was perfect, there would be no need for hope. Paul says it, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Hope, that, hope needs a problem. How many of you have at least one problem? You know, or you know where to find one. (laughs) Raise your hand. All right, yeah, we're all well on our way to hope. How many of you are sitting next to someone who really looks like they've got some problems? (laughs) You probably shouldn't raise your hand on that. How many of you are sitting next to your problem? No, definitely do not raise your hand for that one. The point is we all have problems. We all have groanings. This is the fertile soil for true biblical hope. I better move on. The second quality, hopers stand on their tiptoes in anticipation. I remember being a really little kid 
and my parents telling me one day that my cousins were coming to visit. This was big news and I was so excited. I, I would run back and forth between my mom asking what time they would be here and back to the front window where I'd get up on my tiptoes to try to catch a glimpse of the car pulling into the driveway. This is eager waiting, the, the eager anticipation that Paul is talking about in this passage. One translation says it's literally like straining your neck to see. Hope stands on its tiptoes as it looks out into the future. See, hopers have their feet firmly planted in the now with an eager eye on the not yet. They're not naive. Now, hope isn't some fuzzy feeling, but it does anticipate a better ending. And so if you're in a place of groaning in your life right now, if you're in a place of struggle, maybe just a place of waiting, let me encourage you, don't give up just yet. And as you walk or, or, or as you wait, don't let your posture be one of head hung low or sulking in the corner. The posture of a hoper is up on your tiptoes, not ignoring your present circumstances, but eagerly anticipating what's ahead. It's a future orientation. It goes back to the first fruits concept, the down payment of God's spirit. Yes, just like everyone else, followers of Jesus suffer. Followers of Jesus get fired, they get sick, they go bankrupt, they get dumped, they get hurt, they get anxious. Having the Spirit of God inside us doesn't mean that we're exempted from these things, but we groan with hope because we wait eagerly. These groanings aren't death pangs, remember, they're birth pangs. They're leading to life. Here's the third quality. Hopers know that a glorious homecoming awaits them. This passage says that hope is about the unseen. If, if it was the stuff that we could see and control, then we wouldn't need hope. And here's the thing about you and me. We love to control things, but, but we can't control the future. We wish we could. Sometimes we think we can, but we can't. That's God's department. We can only control our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. But, but, but I remind you of what this text says, that we eagerly wait. What we eagerly wait is our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. It is the great hope of a glorious homecoming that allows us to walk through times of suffering. We even see Jesus himself employing this amazing tool called hope in his most difficult hour. In fact, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us how Jesus was able to endure the cross. It's the same thing hopers must do in order to endure their trials and tribulations and the groanings of their lives. Jesus becomes a model for us in his time of greatest suffering. Look at this amazing insight. It says in Hebrews 12, one and two, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, listen, here it is, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how did Jesus endure the suffering that he faced on the cross? Well, it was because of the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Well, we see it right here. It was the reunion with the Father that he would reassume his seat at God's right hand. What a homecoming. But, but there was another reunion, I believe, in his mind. It was a reunion with us. It was with his children, who, whose pardon that he purchased. We, too, were part of the joy that was set before him. Please don't miss this. The God of the universe has made you the object of his affections. He loves you. He paid the ultimate price so that you could be with him for all eternity. This is our glorious hope. And you may have allowed the problems and the struggles and the hardships that you're facing right now to lead you down a path where you questioned God's goodness or maybe his very existence. But maybe those struggles reveal a deeper and even opposite truth. Maybe the longing that you have for something better, 
for a life that's more perfect, the longing for an existence where there's no pain or sickness or sorrow. Maybe that very longing points to the existence of a place like that called heaven. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his must-read book, Mere Christianity. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless the satisfaction of those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. And so if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. He, he's saying that if there's this universal desire among us, among people, for a perfect place where there's no pain and suffering, that would suggest that a place like that exists. And maybe that place is our true home. And so we eagerly await our adoption as sons, our, our homecoming. You know, in our series back in Ecclesiastes last year, I talked about this great word that was introduced into German philosophy by Martin Heidegger. He, he said that we all live with umheimlichkeit. Isn't that a great German word? It just means homesickness. It's what Paul is talking about here with our groaning, that at our deepest level, we're homesick. We'll never be fully at home in this world. I likened it back then to staying at someone's house for a few weeks. Ever done that? It's, it's really nice of them to host you and all, but, but you can never really fully relax in someone else's home, can you? Like even if their hospitality is off the charts, like at some level you feel like an annoying outsider. And you're constantly wondering things like, you know, is taking a shower in the morning gonna wake people up? Or would they rather chat in the evenings or should I just retire to my room early in the evenings? And like, what, what time, like I, I, I wish I knew where the cereal was and I, I wonder where I might find a fresh roll of toilet paper, you know? And, and after struggling with these questions all day, then you finally do go to bed, but it's not your bed. And you lay on that pillow, but it's not your pillow. And as great as these people are, they're not your people. They're not your family. And so this place is just not home. You see, at the deepest level, we're homesick. And we're homesick for a future that we haven't arrived at yet. And if you try to make your home fully here on this earth, you will always find yourself exhausted and unsatisfied. The pillow here will always be lumpy and it'll take you five tries to find the silverware drawer. It's not, it's not home. Things are not as they're supposed to be. And you know there's more, there's got to be more. We were made for more. And this is where hope comes in. And hopers know that a glorious homecoming awaits them. When our redemption is complete, we will be with Jesus. Remember, the middle of a hard story is different when you know how the story ends. And if you're a child of God, the story ends with the Father welcoming his children home. Here's the deal, if you wanna possess true hope, it involves being in right relationship, receiving forgiveness and new life from the hope giver. You can't just snap your fingers and decide to hope. Hope comes from a person. Hope comes from God. And for some of you on Easter weekend 2023, the reason you don't have hope is because you don't know God. You've not postured yourself in a right relationship with the only one who can give you hope, who can forgive you of your sin and welcome you home. And I'm here to remind you today of great news. God loves you. God loves you. A holy and sovereign and perfect God loves you.
and he wants a relationship with you. And he's here right now, right now to forgive you, to give you a whole new lease on life. The Bible's very clear that nobody was born a Christian. Jesus said you have to be what he called born again. You have to come to him and you say, you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. You're the savior. Please come and forgive me of all my sin. He would love to do that for you. And, and maybe you're a prodigal today and you've been running and running and you're just tired of running. He would love to cover you with his grace and his mercy. The promise for prodigals is that, 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 that you can run into the wide open arms of a loving father. He will gladly welcome you home. Easter is a picture for us that in the midst of our darkest moment and our groaning and suffering because of the resurrection, you can hang on to a glorious hope for the future. A beautiful homecoming is possible for you. So I want you to consider this amazing song. And then we're gonna provide for you an opportunity to take a spiritual step today. Love you guys.